It's a pleasure to be back with you again. I have been a couple of times, but that was when you were in the previous building, and you may not all have been there, but um, it's nice to see you in your new building, very bright space. As it says on the uh, order of service, I am going to read uh, scripture in a moment, but I just want to uh, begin with a question to lead us into this. And the question is, are you self-centered? You might think that's a bit of a rude question to ask. But then you might go on to say, but since you have asked, no, I'm not self-centered. I take an interest in others. I do things for others. And I'm here in church, aren't I? To worship God. I'm not self-centered. To be self-centered is to be wrapped up in ourselves. It's to be self-absorbed. And most of us probably don't think of ourselves as being like that. But the passage of scripture we're going to look at this afternoon might get under our skin just a little bit. It might challenge our opinion of ourselves just a little bit. And I hope it will also help us as men and women who don't want to be self-centered. I think that's true of us. Definitely. The passage we're going to look at is in John's Gospel, as you can see. John's Gospel is all about Jesus, as you know. And our passage this afternoon tells us, He must become greater. I'm going to read from John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, and reading down to the end of the chapter in verse 36. But before we read, let me just give you the context here, because we're jumping in in the middle of things. The first part of chapter 3 recorded a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a prominent figure in society. And Jesus challenged Nicodemus with the reality that his religious life and his standing in society counted for nothing when it came to entering the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom, Jesus said, you need to be born again supernaturally. You need to be renewed by God himself. That conversation with Nicodemus took place in Jerusalem, but the passage we're about to read takes place away from the city, and it reintroduces us to someone who appeared in chapter 1 of John's gospel, a man called John, but not the John who wrote this gospel. This is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, because that's what he did. So let's read from chapter 3, verse 22. After this, that's the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives his spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's Word. And this passage of God's Word divides into two sections. The first is about the joy of being less important than Jesus. That's in verses 22 to 30. The joy of being less important than Jesus. At least that's what this passage is pointing us to, but that is not where it starts. It starts with people who are bitter and resentful about being less important than Jesus. When John the baptizer was first introduced in chapter 1, we learned about his work. He called people to repentance. To repent is to acknowledge our sin and rebellion against God. In fact, repentance goes further than just acknowledging our sin. It involves genuine sorrow over our sin. It involves a commitment to turn from our sin to God. And when people did repent, John baptized them. He described his work as preparing the way for the Lord. When God's Messiah arrived, those who repented at John's preaching would be ready to follow the Messiah. And in chapter 1, John went on to point to Jesus and say, He's the one I'm preparing the way for. He will deal with your sin. He will take it away and he will give you new life. John made it clear that in the grand scheme of things, he and Jesus had different roles to play. John prepared the way for forgiveness and new life. Jesus arrived to provide forgiveness and new life. Very good. They each have their own role in God's work of salvation. But what we find here in our passage is that Jesus doesn't seem to be sticking to his role. Jesus and his disciples are doing exactly the same thing as John and his disciples are doing. Just look again at verses 22 and 23. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. 
chapter 4 will clarify that it was actually Jesus' disciples who did the baptizing. But even so, Jesus is with them. And this is a replication of what John is doing. Matthew's Gospel adds another detail for us. Matthew tells us, in these initial stages of his ministry, Jesus is even preaching the same message as John. Matthew chapter 3 gives us John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then Matthew chapter 4 gives us Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is replicating exactly what John is doing. And he's even come out to do it where John does it, in the countryside. It's almost like Jesus is deliberately setting up in competition to John. And that is exactly how John's disciples interpret what's going on. Verse 25 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. We're not told much about the discussion or the controversy John's disciples have with this unnamed Jew. We know from chapter 1, the Jewish authorities queried John's authority to baptize, and especially to do it away from the temple out in the countryside. And this argument about purification or ceremonial washing is likely more of the same thing. How does John have the right to break away from the more traditional Jewish practices? John's disciples have waded into an argument about that, it seems, no doubt defending what John and they are doing. But that argument is not what's significant here. In verse 26 we discover it's not only that unnamed Jew who's making them feel defensive about their work, they're feeling pretty irritated with Jesus. In fact, they're so irritated with Jesus, they won't even mention his name, you notice. In verse 26, they call him, He who was with you across the Jordan. The one you testified about. The one you said would deal with people's sin and baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Well, he seems to have decided to elbow into what we're doing. He's set up in competition to us. And he's stealing the show. All are going to him, the disciples say to John. Why is he doing this? This is our thing to do. Why can't he stick to what he's supposed to do? And let us do our thing. Does he think he doesn't have enough prominence already? That he has to be first in our little patch as well? Our little area of significance? Why can't he leave our bit alone? He's got all the rest. That's essentially what these disciples are saying to John. No doubt they have heard what he said about Jesus. No doubt they're happy for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John described him as in chapter 1. No doubt these disciples are happy for Jesus to baptize with the Holy Spirit. As John also announced in chapter 1. 
But when Jesus seems to think that even this area is for him, when he comes and dominates the one thing that makes them feel significant, then these disciples are not happy. They view Jesus as a rival. I think it's worth pausing at this point and asking, could you and I ever have a touch of what these disciples have? Do you think we might ever have a dash of their resentment in our hearts? Might it ever be worth asking ourselves, are you Jesus' rival? We might hear that and think, be serious. Me? Jesus' rival? No chance. Okay. But are there ever times when you feel, in your situation, does even this bit of my life have to be about what Jesus wants? I go to church, I pray, I give, and I don't just give money. I give my time to serve Jesus in different ways. I let Jesus dominate so much of my life. Does he have to dominate my decisions and my actions in this area too? Can't there be just one little patch of life where I'm the big thing? Where I'm the main consideration? Isn't that what these disciples of John are doing? And don't we all have our own version of this? Why should Jesus muscle in on my decision about who to marry? Or my decision about my finances? Or my parenting? Or my career? Or my retirement? Or this dispute I'm having with that person? Does Jesus really have to be the most important one in all those areas? And it's not just about the decisions we make. It's also about the outcomes we expect in our life. Don't we all, at some level, expect our lives to go well? According to our own definition of going well. Don't we expect our plans to be blessed and our hopes to come to fruition? But the reality is the universe is not set up to bless our plans. The universe is not set up so that our efforts flourish. It's not set up so that we get our dreams. The universe is set up So what Jesus does is blessed. It's set up so that his work flourishes and his plans succeed. Life is about Jesus, not about us. And the Christian life is about finding our joy in that reality, not getting bitter about it. The Christian life is about the outlook we see in John the baptizer. Look how he responds to his disciples who are so resentful about Jesus taking the preeminence in what they thought was their thing. Look at verse 27. John answered, 
A person cannot, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In verse 27, John says, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. In other words, all of our lives have been given to us by God. That includes the place our lives have in God's plan. And God's plan is that everything gives way to Jesus. Every life and every area of every life is there to support Jesus' rise. Until the day when everything is under Jesus' feet. The day when every knee bows to him and every tongue acknowledges that he is Lord. That's what you and I are here for. We're not here to find our own little patch where we have our chance to shine. We're here so Jesus can shine in our little patch. So he can have the limelight in our life. So our life can contribute to his rise. That's the reality. And you and I can either get bitter about that reality, like John's disciples did, and like some Christians do. We can either get bitter about it, or we can find our joy in it, like John does. That's the alternative. Are we going to be Jesus' rival or his friend? Now in terms of the unfolding plan of God's salvation, John actually had a very special role to prepare the way for the Messiah, as he says here. And to explain how John sees his role, he points to the best man at a wedding. The friend of the bridegroom was the ancient equivalent of a best man. Now for a best man to expect to be the main event at the wedding would be silly. To try and make yourself the main event would be a sad misunderstanding of what was going on. And John says, I do understand what's going on. Jesus is the bridegroom, so my role is to attend him. It's not my day. It's his. And so John says, I am full of joy when Jesus the bridegroom arrives and takes the attention. I'm happy when he gets the bride. Because that's actually what it's all about. And by calling Jesus the bridegroom, John anticipates the way the rest of the New Testament is going to speak about Jesus. He is the bridegroom and his people, the church, is the bride. And so we find the Apostle Paul writing this to the church in Corinth. Paul says to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. 
Paul had a key role in the growth of the early church, not just in Corinth, but all over the place. But just like John the Baptizer, Paul knew he wasn't the main event. Like John, Paul saw himself as the friend of the bridegroom. His role was to deliver the bride to Jesus in good shape. And at the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John is shown a vision of the day when that becomes reality. When Christ is united to his perfected, radiant bride. John sees the church, the wife of the Lamb, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's where history is going. That's what God's plan is steadily moving towards. And so when John says about Jesus in verse 30, he must increase, or in a different translation, he must become greater, when John says that he doesn't mean I must try to make him greater. He means it is the determined will of God that Jesus, his son, will become greater. When the New Testament tells us that something must happen, that's what it means. Earlier in chapter 3, back in verse 14, Jesus explained that he must be lifted up on a cross. It was part of God's plan that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But here in verse 30, this is equally part of God's plan. That beyond the cross... Jesus will not only be raised to life, he will be raised ultimately to the highest place. As history moves forward, Jesus must increase. He must become greater. And both Paul and John the baptizer knew they had supporting roles in that unfolding plan. They knew even in their own lives, they were not the main event. Their lives were not about them. The purpose of their lives was to support Jesus Christ succeeding and shining and becoming the center of attention. Paul and John knew that and they found their joy in having that role and that purpose. They were glad to be less important than Jesus. They were glad to have the honor of attending the star of the show even though that meant letting go of their dreams for personal success and even comfort. For Paul, attending Jesus the bridegroom meant years of prison and it meant plenty of vicious beatings from the enemy of Jesus. For John, attending Jesus the bridegroom meant he got his head chopped off by King Herod. In a sense, John and Paul both lost a lot. But they both testified, it is our joy to let other dreams and hopes die so we can attend Jesus the Bridegroom. Paul and John the Baptizer had unique roles as they attended Jesus. That's true. But you and I have roles too. And they're all supporting roles. 
There's no day of your life or my life that is our day. We may take a day off, but even that is not our day. All the days of our lives are about Jesus, not us. And by that I mean in God's plan, all the days of our lives are about Jesus, not us. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But here the challenge is, given that's what our lives are actually about, since we've all been given the role of supporting Jesus, the star of the show, how are we going to respond to that reality? Are we going to get bitter and resentful and wish that we could shine instead of Jesus? Or will we pause to consider that actually he is the most important one. He is the beautiful bridegroom. And he deserves that our lives should be all about him. Instead of resenting the fact that Jesus is more important than us, will we choose to find our joy in the fact that the purpose of our lives is to enable him to shine and become greater? Are we going to live by John's motto? Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Even in the little things of my life, even in the private things, he must become more prominent and I must become less prominent. Is there a circumstance in your life right now, at the moment maybe, and you realize this is the decision facing you. Are you going to fight to increase or will you rejoice in seeing Jesus increase? As you seek his honor instead of your own. And the wonderful bonus to living by this motto is that the more it becomes true in our lives, the more joyful our lives become the more we struggle to become greater and get our own way and carve out our own little space to shine, the more we struggle for that, the more frustrated and jaded we become. The more of a disappointment our lives become to us, the more chips on our shoulder we end up with. Why? Because in God's plan, Jesus must become greater. And God's plan never fails. So when you and I resist God's plan, we experience endless frustration. And if we resist it to the end, we experience a lot worse than just frustration and chips on our shoulder. That's what's explained in the last section of this passage. Having heard about the joy of being less important than Jesus... Now verses 31 to 36 emphasize the certainty of being less important than Jesus. The certainty of being less important than Jesus. No amount of kicking and screaming on our part is going to change our role in God's plan. No amount of determination can change it. We cannot be the stars of the show. Not even a little bit. Earlier, chapter 3 spoke about God the Father's love for the world. 
In verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what we heard in verse 16. Now we hear about the Father's love for the Son. And while it is wonderfully true the Father does love this world, it is equally true he is determined his Son will be the star of the show in this world. Just look at those final verses again from verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. In verse 31, we know the one who comes from above is Jesus. And we know that because that's how he described himself earlier in chapter 3. In his conversation with Nicodemus. And because Jesus is the one who comes from above, he is above all. Meaning, he is more worthy than all. And also, he is more trustworthy than all. Notice verse 33 says... No one receives his testimony. But clearly that doesn't mean absolutely no one receives his testimony. There are exceptions. And we know that because verse 33 says, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Why? Because, verse 34, Jesus utters the words of God. Of course, the Old Testament prophets did that too. But Jesus is different. The prophets had a measure of God's Holy Spirit. They had enough to carry out their role in God's plan to deliver the specific message God had for them. But Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. And I take that as the Father giving the Spirit to the Son. Jesus has unlimited authority to speak for his Father. On every occasion, into every circumstance and every culture. There's never a time when Jesus' authority wobbles. His words, his testimony about God and heaven and salvation is always trustworthy. And in fact, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That cannot be said about anyone else in history. The book of Revelation shows Jesus as the one who puts into practice the Father's will for history. That work of unfolding history has been placed into Jesus' hands. Meaning he has the power and authority to do it. Yes, the Father loves the world, but before the world even existed, The Father loved the Son. For eternity, the Son has been close to the Father's heart. 
John's Gospel told us that back in chapter 1. The Father has placed the whole world in Jesus' hands and it is the Father's will that one day the whole world will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. That is where history is going. And so for every one of us, there is the certainty of being less important than Jesus. We will not outshine him. We might wonder in our current climate today, is that kind of thinking bad for our mental health? Not at all. The very best thing for our mental health is to stop fighting to be the celebrity of our own life. To stop living like life is all about us. There's nothing better for our mental health than to begin to leave our self-centeredness behind. To let Jesus take central place. To find our place and our purpose among those who attend Jesus. Who find their joy in attending him. Like the best man finds his joy attending the bridegroom. And the wonderful thing is, those who look to Jesus for salvation and live their lives for him, learning to love him as the one who must become greater, those men and women will actually be part of the beautiful bride presented to Jesus when he returns. That's mixing up John's illustration just a little bit. But it's true. And in contrast to that, verse 36 tells us those who fight to outshine Jesus, those who fight to be the star of their own little show, those who continue to insist they must become greater, they get nothing but God's wrath. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is connected to his love for his son. When an already guilty world rejects God's precious son, the one who was given for the world's salvation, then what else could there be for us but wrath? But as we believe in the son as our only hope, as we take joy in him being above all in our life, as we do that, we are on the way to sharing the good things the Father has prepared for his Son. The wedding banquet described in Revelation. So let's ask God to help us. We need his help. Let's ask him to help us so that we become increasingly men and women who find our greatest joy in the truth that Jesus Christ must become greater.